Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Today's investors expect more than a transaction. They want a relationship. Show how your firm merges EQ and IQ with Orion's B520, a new shareable assessment developed by Dr. Daniel Crosby that provides you with emotional and attitudinal insights into clients to facilitate more meaningful investing conversations from day one. Get started today at orion.com forward slash B520. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I am joined today by Eben Burr, who is the president of Taves Asset Management and managing director at the Behavioral Investing Institute. He is a lecturer, he is a virtuosic guitar player, and a coach of applied behavioral finance as part of the Taves Managing Investor Behavior Program. He's here today to talk about a holiday that he and his colleagues just made up. Welcome. Thanks, Daniel. And I appreciate the huge exaggeration on my guitar skills. No, it's your, uh, you and Nick Majuli are sort of the standard deviations metalheads, and I'm I'm happy to have uh, had you both on the show. You're both uh, both great at guitar and both both heavy music fans. I love it. Right on. Let's get together. Nah, yeah, but uh, I will be reaching out to him after this to talk about our band. Um, <laughs> so I I you know I love to talk about uh, visuals on my podcast because I don't know how the five senses work. But uh, you are wearing uh, tell tell the listeners a bit about your shirt and a bit about the psychology behind the shirt that you had made. Uh, yeah, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's awesome to be here. It's awesome to you know chat with you. So about 10 or 12 years ago, I was having some shirts made, which is a really pretentious way to start a sentence. But I live in New York City, and it's about the same price to get a shirt made as it is to buy one. And I have really long AP arms. So um, collars on shirts were getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to get ahead of this since I'm having these shirts made and have huge collars put on. So I got a couple of shirts made with um, like kind of like disco size. I mean, would you say a disco sized collar? Yeah, that's, a, that's appropriate. That's disco sized. And I was really wrong. So <laughs> it feels it feels like there's a behavioral investing lesson there somewhere. You, you were trying to time, you were timing the market, weren't you? I was, t- I was timing the shirt collar market. <laughs> and when I was, when I was getting dressed this morning, I, I put this shirt on intentionally knowing that, that, that basically like you'd be able to see my forehead and which is enormous and my shirt collar. So there's some lesson in there, but I don't really know where it is. <laughs> no. Well, I think there's a lesson in there in principled contrarianism, and I'm sure that the market will mean revert and, and head back your way very soon. But we're not here to talk about shirt collars. We are here today to talk about this new holiday that, that Taves has helped create. Now, this is a brilliant bit of marketing. The name of the holiday is National Investment Risk Management Day, and I need to have you share the origin story with, with the people. Yeah. So the, the, the holiday is to honor the maybe forever, you know, I was going to say decades long tradition, but maybe it's forever long tradition of ostensibly smart people embracing, promoting and invest, investing in bonkers ideas. And Dan Coleman, our director of uh, education, came up with the idea to help bring attention to what seems like an idea that is forgotten periodically, which is managing risk. And then 
Phil Taves wrote a press release, which if you've ever, ever read a press release, they're generally pretty dry. Yeah. But, um, he wrote a really funny, irreverent press release where he just sort of amped it up and called out the industry for investing in dumb things. And we decided to make it an annual holiday that, uh, where we can all just sort of simmer down and focus on risk for a moment. And we look at the risks people take and it's sort of obvious to see in retrospect, like what's going on and people getting caught up in an, in an idea and a mania. And I mean, you know, you more than anyone else, like talk about these scenarios where, uh, something of the moment becomes tremendous and everybody's thinking about it and everybody's, you know, wants in on it. And you sort of lose perspective on if it's a good idea, if it's sustainable, if it's appropriate, you just want it. Um, so when we think about some of the things that have, that have gone on in the last couple of years, like 2021, there was a trillion dollars that went into U.S. stock firms, which is more than the last 19 years. <laughs> now we know exactly what happened in 2022, right? So people are plowing money in essentially at the wrong time, right? And then at, at the time when 30% of the S&P, which is a whopping six companies, had an average PE of 62. So there was, there was information there that we could look at and say, all right, this this is a risky proposition. Mm-hmm. Invest in this thing right now. Yet, it had done so well. We've had an accommodative Fed who's fueled the growth. So, like, well, everything's going to keep going our way because it has been going our way. And when we look at what people really want, most people don't really want the the turbo 100x percent of the market. What most people want is they want to not run out of money, and they want peace and growth. Peace and growth, those things together, not just growth and growth. So we thought it was important to draw attention to this and a sham holiday seemed like a great way to do it. But but it is it is registered with the National Archives. So as shammy as it is, it's an official sham. What 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 holiday isn't a sham? I think the more you, I think the more you learn about most holidays, you you understand that your holidays is as legitimate as the next one. Christmas has trees, uh, Hanukkah has dreidels, Festivus has airing of grievances. How how do we celebrate this holiday? How do we honor such such an auspicious and, and important day? I mean, I think you know, like many holidays, it should be accompanied by a delicious meal. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, but I think there, there's actually work to be done before this holiday can be celebrated. So the, looking back at that, one's practice, one's portfolio, and really looking at, all right, what are the things that I'm invested in right now that could be problematic for the longevity of and appropriateness of the allocation? So am I invested in anything that I'm in because it's exciting? I mean, you know, you and I and everyone else has talked about that's really a boring portfolio is the way to go for most people. Mm-hmm. And when you sort of look at the two tails on a, on on the curve, one is ecstasy and one is devastation. And you don't really want either of those, both from an emotional or an investing perspective. You know, if, if you go in the ecstatic side, it's it's more, you know, emotion associated with gambling. And if you go to devastation, well, obviously nobody wants to touch that. 
So celebrating this day, we want, you want to sit down with your clients and ask, what if this all went wrong? What if we were wrong about our allocation? What if we were wrong about this part of the portfolio? How is that going to impact your financial plan and your goals? And just have that honest discussion like, it's possible that there are things in here that are wrong. And when we look at the beginning of last year, you can look now in retrospect and see a lot of things in there that are, wouldn't have been hard to tell that they were wrong at the time, right? So stress testing portfolios, looking how they're going to perform in sideways markets, rising markets, and declining markets, and try and get outside of the bubble, whatever bubble it is that you live in, in your particular investment world, and look for the tail events that are going to whack you. It's really like what happens in the you know larger part of the curve, most people can roll with, but it's the tail events that kill you. So it, do you have something in there that's trended wildly higher for a long time? Because there's the potential that it could trend wildly lower. And can you handle that? And what are the valuations of what's in your portfolio say about the investment and its its potential future? You know, there's it seems like there's only so long that countries can defy gravity create money indefinitely, uh, keep inflating asset prices before something happens. Yeah. You know, you made, you made a couple of great points there. One of the things that, that Eben's talking about, you know, we call call a pre-mortem, right? Is looking at that portfolio and sort of projecting down the road before everything goes wrong and saying, look, if I'm sitting here five years from now and something's gone catastrophically wrong, what, what, it, what is it likely to, to be? And I think almost every, maybe maybe this is an overgeneralization, maybe I'm projecting. I, I feel like after the last couple of years, as wild as the last few years have been, I think many people at least will have something in their portfolio that no longer fits or like no longer belongs there, that you just accumulated on a whim or that you bought because it was going higher or, you know, bought because everyone else was buying it. You know, I, I also, you know, one of the chapters in my book, The Laws of Wealth, is if you're excited about an investment idea, it's probably a bad idea or something to that effect. Yeah. And, you know, I looked at some of the most exciting forms of investing and they were almost universally, they're almost universally bad. You know, you look at something like day trading, the largest, you know, very exciting, right? Very uh, invigorating, very exciting. The largest study ever done on day traders one in 360 of them showed any evidence of skill, right? So yeah, is it exciting? Yes. Are you good at it? And are you going to make money? Probably not. You, know, you look at something like IPO investing and IPO investing three years on, uh, you, you've underperformed the benchmark by an average of about 20%. So it's it's sort of this hard thing to internalize because we, we we conflate what's exciting and, and what's promising a lot of times, but but it's almost the opposite. We have to really sort of cultivate this boring state approach. So Eben, I saw a, a thing came into my Twitter timeline, a, a cursed image came into my Twitter timeline yesterday. It was uh, a video of Jimmy Fallon and, and Paris Hilton talking about NFTs. And it was the it was the one year anniversary of of Paris Hilton being on the whichever one is Jimmy Fallon's show, right? And and talking about talking about that they were both uh, you know, they had both bought these ape these board ape NFTs. Yeah. And I looked up what she paid for it in advance of our show, and it's about a quarter of a million dollars for a JPEG of a monkey, effectively. 
And a very pixelated JPEG of a monkey. <laughs> right, a very pixelated JPEG of a monkey. And it's like, you're sitting here watching two, you know, wealthy, successful, uh, presumably intelligent people talk about spending, you know, the the average American, the, the price of an average American home on on a JPEG of a monkey. And like, I was never into that. I mean, it struck me as goofy at the time, but last night it struck me as enormously goofy. Like, you know, there is an element of of being a year removed from sort of that that fervor and just going, wow, this made no sense. So part of what you're doing for the holiday is convening an, an august body of thinkers and dignitaries to come up with some of the dumbest investment ideas of the last year. So uh, that's that's got to be one of mine. Um, I, I'm curious what, what yours are. What are your candidates for some of the worst investment ideas of the year? Yeah. You know, just to get back to one thing you said, your presumption of intelligence there, <laughs> um, questionable potentially. I think that NFTs, come on, we knew those were crazy at the time, right? You don't have to have hindsight to look back and say, all right, you know, when PAX Merge sold for $92 million, okay, fair enough, that wasn't last year, it was December of 21. But Clock by PAC and Julian Assange, who collaborated on um, a, a JPEG that you can have for free, if you would like it, a high-res JPEG that you can have for free, sold for $53 million last year. Like, it's Beanie Babies, right? It's Beanie Babies for rich people. And, you know, when you think there are other things that you can sort of think back to, right? Jack Dorsey's first tweet mm. sold for $2.9 million. It is now currently at a value that you could charge on your Amex. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the excitement of crypto and of NFTs is amazing, right? There's It's a massive new world that's opened up. And the NFT part of it, there's there was not a moment where I didn't think it was ridiculous. And I think that I, I, I would think that most people who are not deeply, deeply in the echo chamber of that world saw it as ridiculous. And you don't really hear a lot about NFTs right now, other than how much less they're worth than they mm. were. Uh, I think SPACs were another one. Mm. People made money on SPACs, but just that doesn't mean it's a good idea to invest your money in something that you don't know what it's ultimately going to be invested in. You're investing in a middleman that's going to eventually invest in something else, but they're not quite sure what yet. That's just not a good idea. Yeah. And then, you know, there are other things that we can maybe, maybe are a little more nuanced when we look at long bonds having lost 39% last year or core bond index being down 16%. You know, as soon as they started raising rates or started talking about raising rates, we knew where that was going. Dan, Dan Coleman, our director of education, who came up with a holiday in the first place, we've been talking about this for years. Like at some point, they will need to start raising rates. And when that happens, it is going to be extremely problematic for bonds. And what I've talked to a lot of advisors who have said, well, you know, most of my clients get it. Last year was tough for everything, and most of my clients get it. And you know, that's not good enough. That is not good enough as something to say as an advisor. 
it means you're abdicating your primary responsibility of protecting assets. And I sort of think of it as the advisor Hippocratic oath, right? Primary responsibility is protecting assets. Secondary responsibility is growing assets. And the, the recency bias that is so incredibly prevalent and the FOMO and all of that that goes into the crypto space, I, I, I'm, I'm a believer. I'm actually, I own crypto, so I'm not a crypto hater, though I also see that there is no value to it. The only value is the greater fool, right? The next person that puts money into it, that brings your value up. And I know you, you, I'm sorry for saying something that's going to get you hate mail, but, uh, I think that it's a, it's a huge technological, technological, I was going to say innovation, maybe revolution that is going to change things down the line, but I don't think we're quite there yet. And it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Cause it's easy to sort of look back at the stories like Lily Allen, the, the recording artist who was offered like a billion, what it, what is now a billion dollars worth of crypto to, I think he wasn't, I don't even think she had to go anywhere. I think it was like a cast, like a webcast of her performing. And she was like, no, nah. <laughs> and she'd be a billionaire now. So, you know, there are all those stories like that, that are, that are enticing and fascinating yet all sort of looked ridiculous at the time. You know, one of the things, so the, the utility of, of blockchain and, and, and even NFTs, I think to some degree, because I think there is a legitimate use case for some of the technology behind NFTs. Uh, to allow artists to retain sort of rights in perpetuity and and get paid as a work of art appreciates over time and things like that. Yeah. It's it seems tricky. You know, we saw this with the internet bubble too, right? I mean, there's there's sort of an underlying kernel of truth. The hype around the internet bubble was sort of built around the promise that the the internet was going to revolutionize the world and it and it absolutely did. Sure. But we sort of conflate that kernel of truth with this larger untruth that that then means that you can pay any price for anything that's even tangentially related to this new technology and you're going to be held in good stead. You know, I want to talk a little bit about, you talked about recency bias. What are some of the behavioral traps that give rise to this sort of thinking? Because you know, it's easy with 2020 hindsight to look back and go, oh, wow, that was so dumb. But like, Plenty of plenty of smart people get sucked into this, and I think you start to uh, you know I'll speak for myself. You you start to question yourself and go, well, it, am I being a luddite? Like, am I missing the boat? You know, am I uh, am I not am I not hip and cool? Right? Like, am I what am I missing here? So, what are some of the behavioral traps that that go into this sort of thinking, and how can we remain open to innovation without being you know, sort of easy to fool. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned something there that I think is important, um, which the internet bubble, there, there are going to be five companies that come out of this as superstars, mm. right? And 5,000 that go away. So if you happen to pick those five companies, awesome. And yeah, you know, I'm exaggerating, but that, it's, I think, for most people anyway, impossible to see what, where's the wheat and the chaff in this. Mm -hmm. And I think that the fear and fear 
people talk about fear and greed, and I'm not really a believer in that. I think it's different shades of fear. Mm-hmm. There's fear that prevents you or motivates you from doing things. And then that thing that people call the, the greed part of it is fear of not having enough, fear of not being enough, fear of disappointing. And in a study, which I hope we'll talk about that, that we've been conducting is the fear that you'll outlive your money. That is tremendous. So when we think of, you know, we're, we're ragging on crypto and we're ragging on NFTs. And as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer to in the future. <laughs> I just think there's a lot of ridiculousness in the present. So that fear of missing out is what drives so much of what we do. <clears throat> and I think because of the industry that we work in, that echo chamber gets really, really loud. You know, when you're seeing celebrities like mega celebrities during the Super Bowl selling crypto, it legitimizes it to mm-hmm. a vast number of people. And when you hear about, you know, Citibank or whoever starting a crypto trading desk, well, that means it's real. And that means that it's a thing that we should all be involved in because these huge organizations and institutions have devoted a tiny, tiny fraction of their assets to investigating it. And I think that's a better way of looking at it, that they're investigating because they're, they're looking for the five companies that come out of this too. Mm -hmm. It's not just that they're okay. This is the new, the new future and we're all in They're They're trying, they're devoting a tiny amount to figuring out, all right, how is this going to be useful? in the future. Yeah. So the recency bias of looking at what's been cranking, you know, what's been amazing. Crypto has been, you know, highly correlated and the, because I think the, the volatility is so much greater and, you know, like this year, for instance, crypto's up, what is it? 30%. So it's a lot easier to see the movement than like, I don't know, is S and P up two or three or four? Like, not sure. Don't mm-hmm. really care that much. But when you were like, oh my God, it's up 30%, like it really gets your attention. And it's hard to ignore that. And it's hard not to feel like, well, I want to buy the thing that just did well. I want to buy the past. Mm-hmm. So we're all vulnerable to wanting to buy the past. Yeah. So I think there's plenty of uh, Schadenfreude going around with respect to, you know, watching people get whacked who paid millions of dollars for, you know, Jack Dorsey's first tweet or, you know, watching celebrities lose hundreds of thousands on a JPEG of a monkey. But I think, you know, one of the things that, that we haven't talked about is that last year was tough for everybody. And I mean, last year was tough. This was like a top, I think, top six toughest years for the most prudent, disciplined investors around. So, you know, we're talking about the most widely understood risk management behaviors, stuff like di- diversification, you know, within and between asset classes. For folks who did quote unquote everything lo- right last year, they still had a miserable year. So I- I'm wondering what your thoughts on, on uh, how behaviorally we can convince people to engage in prudent risk management behaviors when doing the right thing, you know, quote unquote, you're still going to take a bath. Sometimes you're still going to lose 20, 25% of your, your net worth, uh, in certain years, even if you're in what is, uh, ostensibly a, a well risk managed portfolio. 
to start, I'm going to challenge your premise that they did everything right. Hmm. A 60-40 portfolio of index products is not is, is ignoring a massive situation, which is that fixed income has bear markets too. Hmm. And the last bear market in fixed income last, lasted 36 years. It's been a while, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. And so what I think that we need to do is think in the third circle, which sounds like something Gwyneth Paltrow would be hawking. But what I mean by that is you've got your, your primary circle where we sort of live our lives and like we can see the risks around us and we understand the risks around us and maybe we've experienced those risks. And then the second circle is, all right, this hasn't happened in a really long time, but I know it could happen. Fixed income bear market. The third circle is, I can't really conceive of what could happen, but it is my responsibility to protect these assets. So I need to think a little deeper than a 60-40 portfolio of index products to earn my client's advisory fee. Not the whole black swan thing, I don't really buy that either because, okay, so you didn't predict it, you didn't expect it, but you could have protected against it. And that, you know, as I was saying before, feels like an abdication of responsibility. And the growth part of a portfolio is easy, which is why index products are essentially free, right? Like you can just go out and buy them for, you know, six basis points, three basis points, whatever. And there you got it. It's just going to move with the market and you're done. Fixed income part. Yeah. You can get that for not much money as well, but just balancing between stocks and bonds, international and US and, you know, a few other things. The, the sort of conventional asset classes, is it really acknowledging the worst case scenarios that are out there that will come and bite you every once in a while? And so looking deeper than the surface is what I think we need to ask people to do. And the tornado that has sucked assets up, all assets up into the sky over the last, you know, whatever decade plus ending in 2021 was fed fuel, right? So which, which enabled buybacks, which by some accounts, um, make up 40% of the growth from 2011 to 2021, you know, it's just, it's been an amazing time to be an investor and but we have to we have to acknowledge that these terrible things happen every once in a while and we have to make sure our clients are okay. And if you had a client that lost 15-20% last year that just retired, nobody wants their clients to have to go back to work. Mm-hmm. We want them to feel like they've invested well with us and they will be taken care of, which is ultimately what we want to do. So I think, you know, I think it becomes hard because there's so many instances and especially in the recent past to point to where doing nothing was the, you know, was the right thing yeah. or doing the extremely simple thing was the right thing. Mm-hmm. And these sort of, you know, alternative assets and, and uh, tactical assets and things like that have just had long, long stretches of, of, of underperformance. You know, if if the most conventional approaches to risk management are things like diversification, you know, across the world and and within and between asset classes, what do you think? What what else can we do to sort of address this third circle that you're talking about 
how can investors be thoughtful about managing risk once they sort of got the bases covered? So I was on a walk, or actually a bike ride with my son recently. We were on a, an old rail trail, and we got to a bridge that we normally cross. And it's an old railroad bridge, so it's two massive I-beams that are about 14 inches wide with wood planks over them. The bridge was closed for renovation. And my son's like, let's, let's walk over it. Like, you know, they're wide enough, we won't fall. And I, I stopped him and said, let's, let's think about the probability versus the outcome. <laughs> You're right. We can probably walk over these I-beams. We have good balance. We've been on our bikes, right? We're active people. We can probably walk over these I-beams with no problem. But the outcome of us falling would be at least broken bones. So that balance of probability and outcomes is essential. And you're right. Doing the easiest thing has been the right thing to do in terms of maximizing return for a long time. But incorporating some smaller amounts of more risk reduction focused elements into a portfolio has been the right thing to do for your client. And we know that most clients are not trying to get every last dollar out or they wouldn't have bonds in their portfolio, right? Bonds inhibit growth to some degree. So it's that balance of probability versus outcome. And I like to think of it as the spokes of a bicycle. You have to have spokes on the bottom and the top when the, or the wheel won't roll. And there have to be spokes on the bottom and the top at every moment of that wheel rolling. So having things in your portfolio that are specifically designed to limit risk. So strategies that employ options to hedge, but that don't necessarily have a floor that you can fall through or a limit to the growth in them. Uh, strategies that can go all the way to cash. Strategies and fixed equities and then the fixed income ones that can move to where the opportunities are in fixed income. And I think a really important element of those that can go all the way to cash or that can move all the way to a different part of fixed income is that they not be predictive. Like my color. <laughs> don't want to predict that uh, that move in big collar to small collar or you know whether it's going to be, the, whether the Fed is going to capitulate and, and reverse. The prediction game is way too hard. You want to be reacting to what is happening at the moment. And um, I have a friend who's an advisor in the Philadelphia area who likes to say, likes to ask his clients, do you want higher returns or more money? <laughs> Which I love. Yeah. You don't have to dig yourself out of the deeper hole. You can have lower returns and still make more money. Yeah. Well, you know, people, Folks don't understand things like variance drain, right? And you know, if you think about, if you think about a car, like I'm, I'm when you're telling the story about the I beams with your son, I think it's a beautiful uh, illustration of this concept. But I was thinking about my car, which is I don't know, eleven or eleven or twelve years old now. So it's like this car I've had for eleven years, which has all you know airbags and sort of all the safety stuff in it, or at least what was state of the art eleven years ago. Right. And and uh, you know none of that stuff is ever deployed, and I and I paid a price for that, and I've never been in a wreck in that car, and I paid for that. So like, did you know the question is did I did I waste money on buying a car that was reinforced and had airbags and whatever? Like, I mean, there's a, there's one respect in which you could say, yeah, you, you wasted money because you never needed that. 
but you can't really think about it that way, right? I mean, earthquake-resistant buildings, airbags, and cars, these are a good whether or not we ever need them. And I think the, the same thing is true of a portfolio. And yeah, I mean, essentially, you're wasting your insurance money on your house, like paying homeowner's insurance is a waste, paying car insurance is a waste until yeah. it's not. Every every month the house doesn't burn down, you're wasting money until until you're not, right? Like you said. Right. So you, you hoped we were going to talk about the the survey your, your firm has done, and indeed we are. You know, your firm has conducted a fascinating study for a couple of years uh, that compares advisor and, and end investor perceptions across a couple of market realities. I'd be interested to to hear from you in this latest survey you've done, where advisors and clients are seeing eye to eye and, and where they're differing. Yeah, just to get a little background on the survey. So we've done it with in conjunction with the IWI three years now, asking advisors and investors the same question and then asking investors how they think the advisors, sorry, asking advisors how they think the investors mm. would answer the same question. And these are investors who have more than $500,000 investable assets and participate in the decision-making with their money. And we ran this last, late last spring. It, and it's, it's fascinating. We always are looking for what are the assumptions that advisors are making that are not necessarily true that we can help uncover to help through the Behavioral Investing Institute, which I'm a part of here, to better prepare them in terms of communication and how to work with their clients to make them happier and better educated to improve sentiment and you know ultimately lead a better have a better business. Um, one of the things that we start with each year is uh, market knowledge. So we ask people to self uh, self-identify their market knowledge. And if you have a lot of market knowledge, not very much. And what we find is that young people say they have a lot of market knowledge. Mm. Which in one way makes sense because if if the stat is true, since 2020, 15% of all the investors that have ever invested started investing. Mm. Even if it's not quite true, <laughs> yeah, even it's if it's incredible. half that much, a quarter that much, it's a lot. So all young people are on Robinhood investing now, right? So they feel like they have market knowledge because they're doing it. They also probably like most young people are more arrogant and feel less of their mortality than older people. There's a really easy quiz that we did or, or one of the questions to identify whether that self-perception of knowledge is accurate or not. And we asked people to identify how much the market went down during the depression, the financial crisis in 2008 and nine and 2020, 2020, yeah. Um, and we gave, you know, it's multiple, multiple choice. They didn't have to just guess the number out of thin air. And we found that it was about the same, you know, around a quarter of people got the depression and 2008, right. And about 39% of people got 2020, right. And it didn't matter old and young. So <laughs> the young people who thought they were smarter, were not smarter about the market. And, you know, you'd think that well, older people would better know about what happened in 2008, right? During the great financial crisis. That wasn't borne out either. Mm. Just sort of across the boards, people. And one of the questions that we asked people that I, that I found was fascinating was, and we've asked this each year, is do you believe we're in a bubble? And again, this was 
spring of last year, late spring of last year. And investors, 45% of them thought we were in a bubble and only 24% of advisors. And I think there are, the interesting thing there is, did the advisors know more about what was happening in the market or was it just, you know, people feeling nervous and saying, yeah, I think we're in a bubble and that's that nervous feeling that I've got. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think could be applied if in fact it is that advisors have more industry knowledge and the investors are lagging is that is a perfect lag for the advisor to be the one providing the education and the information to the investor. And I think a lot of times advisors just assume, well, you know, they're watching Fox business or CNBC or whatever it is too. So they know all the same stuff that I do, mm -hmm. which is just not quite accurate. You know, as an advisor, you have more information about what's going on in the market. You have more perspective and you want that information to be coming from you. You want to be the educator. And while I don't recommend sending out a weekly email about what's going on in the market because you're bringing focus to the short term, which is the last thing you want to be doing as an advisor. I think in a situation like last year where you have a crisis unfolding, you want to be the one bringing them information, telling them about the history of market declines, telling them about how their portfolio is allocated to accommodate for it, understanding how they might be feeling and talking about what you're going to do to accommodate for that situation that is that is unraveling. Yeah. Another thing at that moment that I thought was was really astonishing was we asked the question, do you think we'll enter a bear market in the next 12 months? Here we have another gap. 52% of advisors, just over half of advisors said, yes, we're going to enter a bear market in the next 12 months. Only 42% of investors. So investors weren't as sure as advisors. So again, is that a lag where investors are seeing the market decline and our advisors are seeing the market decline unfold and investors aren't as sure yet? And again, a space for education, or was it something else? But I think the most revealing thing about that is half of advisors thought we, were en we would enter a bear market in the next 12 months. Five days after we completed the study, we entered a bear market. <laughs> Five days. Five days. Five days. So only half of advisors could make a prediction five days out. You know, the market's down, whatever it is, and they're thinking, no, I don't think it's going to go to 20 down. Half of them. So prediction is just hard. Mm -hmm. This industry is complicated, markets are complicated, and prediction is hard. Yeah. One of the things that I find so interesting about this is that it's it's almost impossible to be to have a well-behaved investor if you have an investor with inaccurate assumptions, right? Like the the assumptions are so formative for the choices that they're going to make that it feels like a big part of our educational uh, the educational underpinning we need to be providing our clients is just so they have accurate uh, expectations about how often markets enter a correction or a bear market or how to prepare for it or, or things like that. And it's, it's fascinating to me too, how in some senses the advisors were more optimistic and then in some they were more pessimistic. Mm -hmm. And it just shows that there's like not even probably a well-defined consensus around what bubble means, you know, something like a bubble. Yeah. Yeah. Like what does that mean? 
And so I think it's just a call to the advisory community to be having deep conversations with clients and like, okay, you've heard about a bubble. What does that mean to you? What does that, you know, what does that require of us? How should we act? And things like that. So it's a it's a really illuminating study for me. And I, I love the finding about sort of confidence and age, because I think mm-hmm. markets certainly have a way of of humbling you after you've been around the block a few times. Yeah. Yeah. The the study that we did, if you want to look it up, it's the investor advisor disconnect 2022 advisor and investor research catchy title. <laughs> so check it out. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that we found that was really actually kind of sad was that 84% of people feel anxiety when they just think about their portfolios. Mm. Just thinking about it makes them anxious. And I get it, but it's it makes me sad that that's the the case that we're in. And a funny thing about that, maybe not funny, but the wealthy and the young felt more anxiety. Mm. So people who have set up an expensive lifestyle were more afraid of losing that lifestyle. Yeah. And the young who just haven't had the the time to accumulate and see that, you know, maybe they'll be okay, just sort of see this broad world of I don't know what's gonna happen. How could I possibly ever save up enough money? Yeah. yeah. If you're an advisor and you're so you're an advisor, you check out this study. What do you, what do you do differently? Like what what would you counsel an advisor to do differently based on the findings of your study? I think that bringing the education, the education coming from you is essential, so that it's not something that you know you you're the hub, right? You want to be the hub that they come to, and I think if you're the one providing the knowledge, that's going to create a halo effect around you, um, which is going to lead to more confidence in them, which is going to lead to higher sentiment, better feelings, which is going to lead to referrals ultimately, which is what everybody wants. Like they want to run their business. So, you know, like I was saying before, people want peace and growth Mm -hmm. and determining to some degree what it is that they're absorbing is essential. And so providing them information that is relevant to the longevity of getting across the next gap that they're going to face, you know, what's the next crevice that you need to build a bridge over for them? You know, we, we all have a breaking point. Mm -hmm. That's why torture works Mm -hmm. because we all have a breaking point in which we say like, I can't take it anymore. And I think that the most important thing that we found in this study is that people are more afraid than their advisors think. Mm. I talked to a lot of advisors who were like, yeah, my client, you know, like I said, my clients get it. Last year was a bad year for everything. Yet, and they think, well, my clients have delegated this to me. They're fine. I hear that over and over again. They're fine. They're not fine. They're terrified and they're not telling you because they're embarrassed. Yeah. And I think some of the actions that they're taking 50% of investors are investing in risky stocks outside of the relationship with their advisor and not telling them about it. 25% of them are investing in crypto and not telling them about it. It's because they're afraid of running out of assets and they are investing in these speculative asset classes to make sure that they, or to try anyway, 
to juice their portfolios because they're afraid of running out of money. Yeah, the kids, the kids are not all right. You know, I think this is, you know, I, I watched a TED talk about this years ago. You know, if you go to your ATM machine now and you, you know, get out some money or whatever, it'll say like, hey, do you want to see your balance? And I was always like, of, of course I want to see my balance. But like one of the things, one of the things that they, they started asking that question, but because before the default was just, yes, you're going, you're going to see your balance now. Like we're going to give you a receipt and you're going to, you're going to see your balance. Well, people stopped using ATM machines because it was anxiety inducing, right? Like to see, you know, to see, to see how little money you had in the bank was sort of anxiety inducing. And so people would avoid it and then ATMs wouldn't generate those lovely fees. And so one of the ways they generate higher fees is by just keeping you in the dark about what your financial life looks like. And, you know, you see that borne out in your study too. Was it, was it 86% of people feel anxiety when thinking about their portfolio? I think this is a call to us in the in the finance space and in the advisory community to just, you know, I think I think advisors are as a whole an optimistic group. I mean, you think about a you think about a career path with eighty percent attrition or whatever, and it's like you know the the ones that have made it through are the ones who were optimistic and hardworking and and successful and. And, and have been around the market block a few times. And so know that it does come back and know, you know, know that markets go up three years out of four and things like that. So I think advisors as a whole are an optimistic group and that's usually a good thing. But I do think it can cause us to not take our clients' concerns as seriously as we ought to. So I think this is a good lesson. Well, I think that the fact that they don't necessarily, and this is the disconnect that we were looking for. They don't know about their client's anxiety. Yeah. They don't know about it. And one thing that I think was a little optimistic in what we found is that 59% of investors think that their advisor has a plan for a bear market for them. And that mm. brought them great comfort mm. to know that they're, you know, so almost two thirds. The problem there is only 43% of that 59% know what the plan is. Mm -hmm. And what we revealed was that the more people know what the plan is, the more the feelings of loyalty and warmth towards their advisor is generated. That's and again, it's that, you know, if they, if they have the knowledge, it builds the confidence that improves the sentiment that ultimately leads to the referrals. You know, that's, that's what we're trying for. Yeah, and I think sometimes we can be loath to bring up sort of this bear market readiness plan because we don't want to sort of put some bad juju in the conversation or we don't want to, you know, we don't want to introduce a fear where none exists, but it sounds like this is actually something that's on clients' minds already and and so we're actually giving them that that piece that you've talked about throughout the episode. We're giving them that piece by by bringing it up. I think that's I think it's a brilliant brilliant observation. So, Evan, to close this out, uh, you are one of my two go-tos in the industry for music. The other is my own colleague, Rusty Vanneman. Shout out to Rusty, uh, host of an excellent podcast, The Weighing Machine. Uh, go check that one out too. But uh, you and Rusty are my go-tos when I want to talk about music. And so I wanted to ask you, I sent you this question before because this is a tough one. I'm going to uh, I'm gonna bring up uh, a famous investor uh, or uh, or a product or an investment idea, and you're going to name the band that embodies the vibe of that person, product, or idea. So, 
I, I love this so much. I love this so much. And as soon as you sent me the questions, it was all I could think about. It's, it's really, it's fantastic. I'm not going to, I'm too proud of this. I'm too proud. I'm too proud of this. I'm too proud of this question. And I, and I don't know your answers and I can't wait. Okay. So the first one we got to go, we got to start with uncle Warren. What is the band that embodies Warren Buffett? And I've got my answer too. So I have to say for all of these, I was, I, I, I couldn't pick one. So with Warren Buffett, it was the theme song to the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> or maybe green acres um but then i was like ah he's a little more christmas music and then i thought you know it's all about your famous relative your great uncle bing crosby yeah that's you know he's the he's the like the folksy mega capitalist so I had him down for U2. Now, U2, U2 is not U2 is not the worst band in the world. But they are the they're the number one favorite band of people who know nothing about music, right? Like if you know <laughs> if, you, if you know nothing about you music and you ask so like what's your favorite rock band? It's going to be Coldplay or U2 or something like that. So like Warren Buffett to me is the investing analog of that. Like, yeah, he's the favorite investor of people who know nothing about investing. So that's that's how I arrived at my answer. Oh. So so Bing Crosby. Well, you cut me deep with with uh with cousin Bing, but okay, so Ray Ray Dalio. Who who do you got for Ray Dalio? So Ray Dalio for, for this one just like was a solid one that I couldn't get away from. And it's Dear Mr. Fantasy by Traffic. <laughs> That is extremely specific. Go on. So there's only like four, there's only like four lines in the whole song. It just says the same stuff over and over again. And one of them is, please don't be sad. If it, if it was a straight mind you had, we wouldn't have known you all these years. Right? Because Ray Dalio is kind of like the groovy capitalist, right? Like he meditates, but he's a bazillionaire and he donates to educational things like that. So... He's kind of a weirdo, but we wouldn't have known him all these years if he wasn't that weirdo. And if you've never seen the footage of Traffic playing that song live, where Steve Winwood is clearly on acid, it's worth a look up. <laughs> well, I know what I'm doing after this show. <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm excited about this one. So Kathy Wood, who, what do you what do you have for Kathy Wood? Because there were two for that one that I couldn't really decide between. One was Firestarter by Prodigy, Pro, Prodigy, <laughs> because which she, is now stuck in my head. Go ahead. Which it's a fantastic song. She lit a bunch of people's money on fire, um, but she is also just this amazing force. And that song has a lot of drive to it. And you know she's she's been investing in the Firestarters, right? Yeah. Uh, the other one is Beachland Ballroom by Idols, which sort of starts out, for those that don't know it, sort of starts out kind of uh, almost like a waltz mm -hmm. and then goes into this chaos where he's just kind of the refrain. He's just sort of seeing damaged over and over again, which 
you know, I, we, we, we should all be so lucky to be as damaged as her fund, which I think brought in like $1.3 billion last year, even though it was down 60, 70%, whatever. So those are my picks for that one. A little, little random. Yeah. I love those picks. I love I love the rationale. I do I do now have Firestarter in my head. Idols, when you listen to standard deviations, you get investment knowledge, but you also get band recommendations. Idol is one of my favorite punk bands of the last that well, I don't know how long they've been around. I discovered them in the last year, thanks to you and or Rusty. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Turnstile would be the other favorite band of the last couple of years. Uh, punk band of the last couple of years. Okay, Bitcoin. What Bitcoin? What do we got? Okay, Bitcoin is Drink Deep by Rights of Spring. So Rights of Spring, relatively obscure band from 1985. One album that is credited with creating the whole genre of emo. Oh, so the song Drink Deep, which is a longer song, maybe it's the last song on the album, and it's drink the the one of the lyrics and maybe it's the refrain is drink deep it's just a taste but it might not come this way again mm. and i feel like a lot of people wanted to drink deep and they felt like it wasn't going to come this way again and so they dig drink deep and so i don't know that's the one that that resonates with bitcoin now yeah as a as a one-time emo enthusiast i've got to go check that out as well uh, index fund investing. So I think that that's more of a genre. And I would say that that genre is the loud, quiet, loud genre, like the Pixies. Yeah. Well, that's Nirvana. very cool. That's very cool to give index fund investing the Pixies. That's like, uh, <laughs> I mean, I think of like vanilla ice cream with index fund investing and you gave them the Pixies. That's very good. You know, when you started to say that, I thought you were going to stop at ice and just say vanilla ice. <laughs> But the cream ended up on there. Yeah, um, yeah. Vanilla, vanilla ice cream. I think is a is a, is a great one, though not music. Um, yeah. But I think yeah, the loud, quiet, loud, right? Like, it's it's like it's the only thing. It's the only thing. It's the only thing. Well, we're not going to talk about it right now. It's the only thing. It's the only thing. It's the only thing. You know. Ah, uh, yeah. Good. Could w- would have also accepted Mogwai for for index fund investing. Okay. Last one: risk management. Well, I have three for this one. I couldn't decide. So there's a band called Sun, which is spelled S-U-N-N and then an O and then three or four right brackets, but it's just pronounced Sun. And it's basically drawn music. It's boring, yet compelling. So the portion of risk management that you add to a portfolio ultimately should bring down that volatility of that portfolio. It should make it more boring. It shouldn't impact the return necessarily. It should make it more boring and less painful. It should just be there. The other thing that I was thinking for risk management would be public enemy. Speaking truth to power. Band like that, that is just, you know, it's their speaking truth to power. And then the last would be Fade Into You by Mazzy Starr. An amazing song, a beautiful song, a repetitive song, and a calming song. It's to bring the calm. So there's a couple of songs that it's like, I can remember where I was when I first heard them. And I think a lot of the songs are like from 
from when I was a kid or a teenager when you're just sort of exploring music. But, you know, uh, Voodoo Child is one. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody is one. Fade Into You is one. Dummy by Portishead is one. Sure, classic. Amazing. Yeah, uh, Hard Shape Box. We, like all of these songs were just songs when I heard them for the first time, I was like, whoa, this is different. But Fade Into You is an absolute favorite to this day and is about as calming and beautiful a song as you'd ever find. So, well, Evan, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned uh, Public Enemy. So we'll go out on a Public Enemy note. My name's Charles Daniel, so that means I'm Chuck D., that, of course, makes you the flavor flave of risk management. And it has been awesome. And it's been awesome to have you here. Um, if people want to learn uh, more about you, the study, your firm, where, where can we find you? Daniel, thank you. It's, it's such a pleasure and an honor to be here speaking with you. You can go to the Taves website, Taves Asset Management, which is tapescorp.com, the Behavioral Investing Institute, which is BII Coaching. I post little videos on LinkedIn and other tidbits, but most of all, I love a random phone call from someone. 800-511-9390. Call me up, harass me. Go for it. I challenge you. Imagine, imagine being the kind of person who speaks for an hour about risk management and then gives his phone number out on a podcast. You, sir... You are walking on an I-beam. Wonderful <laughs> to have you. Wonderful to have you here. Thanks for sharing so much great stuff with us today. Thanks so much, Daniel. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.